Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So what is astonishing you, friend? Well, Sunday, if you had walked into our sanctuary on Sunday, you would have seen clean floors. Now, I know that's not very astonishing, but before this past Sunday, if you'd walked into our sanctuary, you would have seen dozens and dozens of wires at the front of the sanctuary. You would have seen a table with all kinds of audio equipment. I mean, it was a visual and actual mess. And it got that way because um, during the pandemic, just after the quarantine, uh, a church that we rent space to, a Spanish-speaking church, wanted to move from the fellowship hall into the sanctuary to worship. And of course, we said yes. We were still um, worshiping from home. And so they brought a lot of their sound equipment in and set up a table at the front of the sanctuary to begin live streaming. Then when we came back to the sanctuary, we combined our equipment with theirs, but it was just all, all the wires were just laying on the floor. Like during worship, I like three times over the past year tripped over wires <laughs> and like I unplugged the, um, the wire that went into the keyboard, like the speakers would squeak and squeal because I was just stepping on the wrong thing. I mean, it was really a mess. And so we've been saying for months and months and months how we need to change this. We've got to upgrade. We've got to move forward. And in this season, things move so slowly. And we 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 have a lot of want to. We yeah. have a lot of vision. Um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I mean, we really struggle to get things done in the season. Before the pandemic, uh, we had 75 to 100 people in worship. Now that we're back in this, I, I guess, post-pandemic time, we have less than 50. Mm-hmm. We just don't have the hands and the people power that we used to have. And so we get frustrated with ourselves, and I get frustrated with myself as a leader because I think I should be doing more, should be producing more, mm-hmm. and more should be happening. And you know, I see my to-do list, and I, I'm just constantly feeling like I'm running on this treadmill I'm not able to catch up and it is discouraging and in my worst moments I feel like I'm failing this group of people that I love Mm -hmm. and care for that I'm failing these people these people that I want to win in Mm -hmm. a a real spiritual way Um, I'm failing these people that I am charged to lead into increasing faithfulness to Jesus Christ and sometimes I just feel like I'm failing and when I walked into the sanctuary on Sunday and we started worship on Sunday and I know in the grand scheme of things it's really small but it just felt like the biggest thing for us and it was worth celebrating and you know I said to the to the congregation you know we, we just acknowledge the struggle that we're having as a congregation, but also we just keep coming back to the scripture that says, be not weary in well-doing, mm-hmm. or you'll reap a harvest if you do not give up. And I'm affirming to myself and to the congregation that yeah. the only way we fail is to quit. Yep. The only way we fail is to stop putting one foot in front of the other, and yep. we are the, the Lord has more patience with us than we have with for us. ourselves. Right. Yeah. Well, because we live in a culture that says, if it's not the best, why bother? Yes. And I, I think we live in a culture that doesn't 
you know, we celebrate overnight successes and we tell people's story as if everyone's story is an overnight success. And a lot of times when you uncover sort of a new author or a new um, musician or whoever, you know, it, there's there's years of toil and work and small failures. And we just go like, oh, but none of that counted. Then lightning struck and all of a sudden you became something different instead of like, no, that sort of hidden season where it just looked like nothing valuable was happening like that. That was the becoming. And I think um, I, and I mean, what you're celebrating is progress, right? What Absolutely. you're celebrating is the ability to take one step further towards becoming the community that you believe that God is calling and equipping you to be. And I think that's really, I mean, that's really powerful because it's, you know, we don't, we don't talk about the fact that Jesus is the way, like we've turned that into kind of like a, a weapon that we hurl at people, um, a, a theological um, uh, claim of supremacy, as opposed to, um, an actual literal um, explanation of following Jesus is 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 a way of living where we are right now and a way of becoming. And it's not a matter of do this, do that, and then you will have arrived. It is a way of being in the world as Jesus was in the world um, as God, God incarnate. So I think it's just really important not to be ashamed of what was in the past not to erase that but also just to celebrate every small step because there's no there's no other kind of step except small steps yeah and, and as we walk things out what we keep seeing is god's great faithfulness right right well and i just think um like there's this real tension with our physical space that on the one hand i think a lot of communities like ours and maybe not either of ours in particular but a lot of churches, um, because the space is visible and because the space can be controlled, the space can become a, um, a blocker on ministry. And we say things like, well, we don't want to do that after school program because um, those kids are going to you know, wear down the building. Or if we let this group use our space, what, what are they going to do to our space? So, so we seek to preserve the space in a way that hinders the ministry and that actually ignores the fact that the space exists to provide um, the resources for ministry. Um, so we always want to make sure that the space doesn't become the ministry, that it, it becomes enabling the ministry. But on the other hand, um, you know, the space is it matters. And, and so to be able to say like, yes, you could have continued forever with cords all over the floor and it, you were able to do the thing the um to do worship but to be able to um devote resources to making the space more accessible and more aesthetically pleasing like that's a good thing right and so it's that inherent tension between wanting to take risks with the space not wanting to invest money in space as opposed to community and people but also knowing that there are times when the space that we have is one of the gifts that we're offering to the people who we are inviting into the life that we share. Absolutely. And so like navigating that tension is, is tricky. Um, we're, we're looking with a, a team of folks at some potential shifts in the way that we use our physical space that will require um, some money, but will, um, if it all comes together, will result in making the space um, more 
peace of mind, especially for families with really young children. And you just kind of always are negotiating like, well, does it make sense to invest money um, to improve what we're doing, um, but not to change it just to improve it? Or does it make sense to continue to just say, well, it doesn't matter if there's cords on the floor. It doesn't matter if we're using a, a room that was last recarpeted 40 years ago. Right? Like just that tension is a really interesting thing to navigate. But I do think part of how we use our space is about hospitality. So Absolutely. being able to say, can we, um, can we create a physical space that when people walk in, they really experience that as, wow, people have prepared for me. People have made this more beautiful than it has to be. People, um, you know, that the hospitality is obviously a, a core um, spiritual practice in our tradition. So that's really cool. I celebrate that with you big time. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, what's astonishing you? Um, I had this really interesting moment in worship and really almost every every week in worship. Um, we have a practice that we intensified during the pandemic. And then when the pandemic was over, um, the elders in my community said, hey, let's not go back to what was before. So when we were worshiping virtually, um, one of the things that became really important really clearly was we needed to see one another and we really needed people to to stretch and reach and to say, can you please record a segment of worship? And then we had someone who would stitch them all together. So most um, weeks during worship, I did one part. I did one thing. I did the sermon or if someone else was doing the sermon, I did one other thing. But um, but different people in the community led the other parts of service. So I think there are like seven discrete parts of the movements in the worship service. Um, and and when we were coming out, like previous to the pandemic, we had other people leading, but I would do maybe three parts and then other people would do the other four. And and the elders said, hey, this is a really good thing. Like the, the fact that the um, uh, doing it virtually forced us to do that really helped us to move deeper into who we really are anyway, which is a community where we as people lead worship for one another. Um, and I just, I really believe in that. I believe that if worship is for all God's people, then people need to be led in worship by a wide spectrum of other people, right? Otherwise, we run the um, danger of making people feel like worshiping God is something professionals can do, Absolutely. or worshiping God is something that can only happen um, in a certain cultural style, or or or, or only must at a certain place, certain time, or must produce a certain kind of feeling in order to be quote real. Mm -hmm. And so, I think having a, a community where people are leading worship, um, bringing their own excellent gifts to the table, so so some of which are going to be really unfamiliar and uncomfortable to other members of the community, but that is okay. That's the healthy spiritual discomfort that we really prize around here. And also really important, um, actually one of the members of our community, a, a guy named Paul, led the prayers of the people two weeks ago. Um, and I asked him, and I will say as a pastor, it's tricky to recruit six people to lead worship every week because um, it, it requires reaching out to people and then people are getting back to you and you don't know, well, if that's going to be a no, should I go ahead and ask somebody else? And then a lot of times you're waiting to hear back from the person. And so you don't ask, and then you're asking someone else at the last minute. And then also just 
truthfully, and this is no one's fault, but like life is weird and we're still in a pandemic. And so sometimes people say yes, and then it turns out that they can't. They can't. So a lot of times I am asking people later than I would love to be asking them. And, and so that's just attention all the time. Um, but I had asked Paul to lead the prayers of the people and, and without very much notice. And he got up two weeks ago and he said, I decided um, a while ago that anytime Pastor Kate asked me to lead worship, I was just going to say yes for no other reason that people out in the congregation would see me and go, well, if Paul can do it, I can do it too. That's and I fantastic. Think, I know, right? And he was being self-deprecating because he is an amazing worship leader. But I also just, like, I really appreciate the sincerity of that. Like, that's 100% true. It creates a culture of saying, like, we don't, we are not the, we are not the judge of the gifts that we offer. And so, mm. like, when we lead worship, it's for the people, but ultimately it's for God. And so, we would not, um, decide for God that someone's leading of worship isn't quote good enough and God is raising up a community of people who are worshipers and so at, at every stage of our growth um, God celebrates and rejoices in that so you don't get mad at a two-year-old because they can't run a mile, right? Like to have that expectation of a two-year-old would just be cruel. You celebrate a two-year-old uh, or a one-year-old when they take their first steps, even though, you know, it's not the way that they will stride across the earth when they're 14 or 40. And you don't mock someone in their 70s for not being able to run a mile either, right? Like you have right expectations for what is good and reasonable in every stage of life. And I think, especially in the Peace USA and in mainline culture, well, no, I'll just say in church culture, often this is a mainline evangelical common problem. We sort of say, well, God is good and God is excellent and God is great. And so if you're not going to be good, excellent and great, sit down. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is we impose our understanding of what's good and excellent and great and say that that's what it is in God's eyes. And we're centering ourselves and our pre precedent, our preferences over um, what the church exists to do, which is to invite people in to come alive in Christ. And so to have people leading worship in different ways authentically and to have people publicly leading worship as they grow into their maturity in leading worship, like to see that at every stage along the way forms the culture in ways that's really important. And I think like Paul is a very experienced worship leader, but I was just so glad that he said that, that, you know, to come up front, like obviously we don't want folks um, to come up front if they really have a deep seated anxiety, like God's going to torture you. So like, if it's, that's really not your gift to be up in front of people, like that's fine. Um, and we don't want people to come up front full of themselves and like not caring or whatever. But, but if people are sincerely trying to serve God and serve the people, then the gift that they give is good. I just really believe that. Um, well, I love that place in the gospel of John where Jesus says the father seeks worshipers mm -hmm. and they who worship must worship in spirit and in truth, right. not in Excellence, excellence and perfection, but right. spirit and in truth. Right. So if what you are saying, doing before the people of God and before God is true, then it's good worship. If it is in the spirit, by the spirit, that is, 
you're not relying on your own giftedness or ego or whatever, then it's it's by the Spirit. You are aware of your weakness and your need to have God help you do what, what mm-hmm. it is you're doing. That's by the Spirit. And so, yes, what you offer is good worship. And I also think, like, we have to be careful about how we say, use the word truth, because sometimes mm. truth uh, claims can be gatekeeper claims, right? And people always say, well, I want to sit down because I'm afraid that I'll get up there and say something wrong. And so I think it's about saying like, you need to come forward and to the best of your abilities, like say what you believe. And and if in the course of that, you know, later on you learn something different or your thinking grows or evolves, like that's, that's okay. Uh, you know, there have been times when people have led worship at the Grove um, that... Uh, that people have prayed something or phrased something in a way that I'm just like, you know, that's not, that's not what I would say. And honestly, in a deep sense of reverence and humility, I don't think that's true, but I also think it's holy. Um, and we're growing and evolving. And for me as a pastor, I feel like, look, I have this huge platform with the sermon every week. Like that's my time to say, here's what I think the truth looks like. And then you just have to trust, um, you have to trust the Holy Spirit is at the work of forming people. And obviously, if somebody said something, you know, egregiously evil, I would stand up and counteract that. But if somebody said something with a theology that just isn't what I think is totally accurate, I just, you know, I I, I will let it stand or talk to them directly because I just think or, or trust the Holy Spirit to bring up those conversations within the community because ultimately – Worship is a gift we give God and a gift that forms us as a community. And sometimes a reaction to something that was, quote, not perfect or not entirely true can be more formative than if somebody had just stood up there and, mm. like, well, recited the, the party line. But anyway, that isn't even what I was going to talk about. I, um, I, I, I was so grateful for uh, Paul for saying that. Um, I'm so grateful always for people who say yes when I ask them to lead worship. Um, and then this past Sunday, um, we, have, we have a couple people in the community, and this is great too, who just really love leading worship and are really um, uniquely gifted and equipped for it. And so they lead more regularly, which is great as well. Um, and so Nicole, who's a friend of both of ours and who preaches at Dorida oft- frequently, um, she I had asked her to lead the offering. And so she stood up and I just... Oftentimes during the offering, just the people who lead that, particularly um, we have a, um, a friend, a member of our community, Jerron, who leads the offering every week. And, and every week he um, gives just an amazing mini. And I do mean mini. Like he has that gift to say so much in 90 seconds. And every week, you know, people who lead the offering are just casting vision for what it means. Like, why do we do this? And a, it's a perfect time to cast vision. Right. And just to say, like, and honestly, like, it, it is sort of what what the experts say stewardship should be, which is not a drive once a year, but just that every week we're thinking about what do we have and what is God calling us to do with what we have and what do we believe in and what does it mean to be a generous people and why are we generous and what does generosity look like? So all that kind of stuff. So where your um, heart will be, your treasure will be also. Yeah. I mean, Jerron just does this amazingly. And so he does it almost every week that he is here, but he's taking a little um, summer sabbatical. He travels a lot in the summer, so he hasn't been around. And so um, Nicole agreed to do this. And, and as is often the case during that offering moment, it's, I, I am in, I mean this in the best way, like just being preached to, like I just, it was so helpful and just edifying. And so she gave this thing. She was talking about a 
um, a very um, prominent preacher um, in the megachurch world who recently um, came out. I'm, I don't know why I'm not saying his name's Creflo Dollar. People know Creflo Dollar. And he's done a lot of teaching over the year about uh, years about tithing. And um, he got a lot of attention because on one Sunday morning, he just stood up in the pulpit and said, you know, I've come to believe that I was wrong um, in what I taught about tithing. And um, any book or tape or sermon that you have of mine that was on tithing, I just want you to throw it away. I want you to burn it. I don't want you to look. I was wrong and, and preached a sermon about it. And I have not listened to the sermon that he preached, but obviously people have been reacting to this. And Creflo Dollar, I would say, he's not a pros- prosperity gospel preacher, but as is true for all of us, he's on the spectrum, right? Like, I, and, and he has been really noted, um, he, famous slash infamous because he at one point told the church that he needed a, a private jet to do ministry and was asking people um, to give to this so he could have a private jet. I think he said something about like the Holy Spirit doesn't want him flying coach, right? Or something like that. And and people, whatever, um, had lots, to rightly so, to say about, you know, what does it mean for a pastor of people who often have very little to be asking them to give out of their little to fund his private jet. And so he's, he's, um, he's a big figure. And so when he said this and, and what Nicole pointed out in her offering sermon was, she said, and, and, you know, because the church is what it was, what it is, when he announced that he had been wrong and he was repenting and he was turning to walk away, like the, the church surrounded him and, and rejoiced as a brother had found his way and welcomed him in. And, and she was like, no, that's not what happened. Like we just attacked him. Right. So, so people attacked him when he was preaching a theology of tithing that was really, um, opposed to the ethic of Christ. Um, and then when he said, I was wrong, <laughs> um, I'm, I, 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 my teaching was in error, destroy it. People also attacked him. And we were just saying, we said a lot. Um, well, first of all, I'm sitting there in the pews thinking, oh, it's I'm me. one of those. I am the man. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just like, cause I, 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 I had a lot to say about like, well, you're not refunding anybody's money though, are you Creflo or what, you know, I just, um, and I think we talk a lot about the, the repentance is a fruit of the Holy spirit. And you and I have said before that in Christian communities, we are not a culture that celebrates or inc- it's not a safe space to repent in a church. Um, unless it is that Sunday morning when, the pastor is given the invitation to become a Christian and someone off the street decides they want to give their life to Jesus, then we love repentance. But once you are in the church, we don't celebrate repentance. And we really, like, again, we fight the culture wars instead of trying to um, make a space where people are so loved that they can be vulnerable enough to say, I was wrong and know that they'll be welcomed and celebrated Mm -hmm. and not. And I think like we say, we believe in repentance. Like if you would ask me pre this revelation, if I thought that it would be right for Creflo Dollar to change his preaching on tithing, I would have said, oh yes, that would be a movement of the spirit. But then when he actually did it, my first natural 
instinct was, you know, to be suspicious or suck my teeth or do, you know, and so I just think like, it's just really helpful for us to examine our own hearts and say, if we, do we really prize repentance or do we punish the behavior we want to see? Do we force people to stay in camps and cultures that are um, not life-giving and that resist the gospel? But do we really encourage people to stay in those categories because they know that, we, we, quote, we wouldn't welcome them to quote our side anyway. Like, and then, so then why would you change if you know- it's safer to be wrong because- And accepted. Yeah, that's right. Because you will be accepted. And so I think whatever his reasons are, however pure and pure his heart is, I don't know. But I mean, I think he's correct. I think his teachings on tithing were in error. And I think when somebody says it is so rare to see anybody, much less a megachurch pastor, stand up in front of a congregation and normalize saying I was wrong and I'm I'm turning around and walking in a different way, that regardless of what we understand that to be, it's not our job to know what the motives are. And that doesn't mean that we now go like, okay, you're we wouldn't not stop being discerning people, but but we should be celebrating that and encouraging it so that when people see how we react to him, they get an idea of like, oh, if the Holy Spirit, if, if I'm feeling like I might be wrong about things, do I just like suppress that voice because I'll, I'll lose my current community and the community? I mean, this is the problem with whatever ad hominem attacks, like when instead of talking about an idea or an understanding, we talk about the people who hold that idea or that behavior or that understanding, and we just say, oh, well, those are garbage, evil people, then it makes it impossible for someone to turn around and see a different way. And I've been thinking about Paul on the Damascus Road a lot, and that's just what's so interesting is that Jesus was able to say, like, your behavior, you've been resisting me. You've been persecuting me. But who you are is not a persecutor. So come and be part of what I'm doing now. And we don't do that. Well, it's why we see so many um, anti-critical race theory laws. Mm -hmm. It's because there is a segment of the population that thinks if it acknowledges a history and present reality of racism in the country that there there is no place of repentance there if 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 one does repent it only means more judgment more criticism so let's not even talk about it let's not acknowledge racism let's not acknowledge systemic racism let's not talk about it because there there will not be a community that accepts right because we have again then the secular culture wars have crept into the church so we now see ourselves as on two sides mm-hmm. and we uh, we label those sides good and evil and so if you think like oh my goodness some of the ideas that uh, and values and behaviors that form my community i'm now wondering could this be a, could these be in opposition to Jesus? But repentance doesn't lead to rejoicing and it doesn't lead to restoration. It leads quite quite literally to being cast out into the outer darkness. Because if you say in a community, well, I am rethinking my understanding about abortion or I'm rethinking my understanding about, you know, um, historical and current disenfranchisement and oppression, then the communities you're a part of will say, get out of here. We don't want any part of you. And the people on quote the other side are going to be like yeah well you're still you're still evil we don't want any part of you either so you can't there's no place you got to stay where you are because no place else will take you 
and you you will then lose community altogether, which is why as churches, we should be really centered in this idea of like, we are a place for the outcast. We are the place for the weak. We are the place for the battered and the bruised and the people who have failed and are brave enough to try again. We are not a club for the people. We're not a righteousness club. We are not a righteousness club. We, we, we celebrate righteousness. We, you know, we aspire to be righteous, but we know that we are not righteous. And so we don't judge people whose past is, and let me add that even though in our greater society there may be um, a reason to fear um, that one would not be accepted uh, when repenting of mm-hmm. racism, in the black church and black Christians in general, black people in general, black Americans in general, that's not the case. We right. have a history of welcoming, celebrating white people who repent of their racism. Mm -hmm. No, and I think that's why, you know, it's really important to recognize that the, um, the call to follow Christ really is unique, no matter how hard people work to align it with either side Mm -hmm. of the political ideology in this country. Like the reality is the fall, the call to follow Christ really is going to have some significant overlaps with parts of sort of the conservative or the progressive agenda but the differentiation is going to to be huge partly in the way that we talk in the way that we hold these values so we do not demonize and otherize and reject and seek to destroy or oppress or overcome people who are um, not walking in the way what we try to do is seek to be salt and light and winsome and welcome folks in and understanding that we we are where we are, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. And that amazing grace has saved a, a wretch like me. <laughs> and because I know my wretchedness, I don't look down on and despise on other people who, you know, many people in the culture would call wretched. I know that I have um, been welcomed in by this amazing grace and I want to be a welcomer. Um, and so I, I just think that's missing. And I think I just was really convicted by Nicole's, um, leadership in that to look at my own, you know, as I talk about generosity and as I would, you know, have, I think legitimate concerns with the philosophy of giving that Cruffalo dollar has preached, but then I had a spirit of courting, what I understood to be righteousness and to being stingy with generosity and really thinking that I knew where the Holy Spirit would and would not be at work and just really not, you know, was not walking in my own and a right understanding of my own moral stature <laughs> that God is God and, and I am not. And I, I, anytime anybody takes a step towards greater righteousness, we should be the people who celebrate that and not the people who are like too late, yeah. right? Or too little too late. Like, and you know, and I've talked before about how I hear Christians oftentimes in the mainline community or settled, you know, talk about, Oh, jailhouse conversions. And isn't that ridiculous? I'm like, no, we're all death row inmates mm. who are receiving a, you know, pardon and forgiveness or who are like holding on to the fact that that we deserve or w- whatever is coming to us is coming for us and can't be stopped by God loves us and God would show us compassion like that's all of us and anybody who thinks that they've lived a righteous life is just lying to themselves so anyway i am grateful for just the the way that the holy spirit 
gives a, a word and a revelation to all God's people and um, to have a community that really says, hey, you don't have to be perfect. Um, you can be growing <laughs> and um, the Holy Spirit will infuse and um, just edify the gift that you have to give. So, yeah. Because I, okay, last thing. I do love how I'm always like, I'm done, but then I'm not. I just think it's interesting. <laughs> I think sometimes we have this dichotomy of like, I, when Cain and Abel... When when Cain offered his sacrifice, did God reject his gift, or did God just say that he preferred Abel's gift? That's a good question. I think it was rejected. Because I feel like that's what we think sometimes. What we're like, oh, I don't want, I don't want my gift to be rejected, and I just think that 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 somehow that has deeply informed our idea that that we have to be careful what we give or how we make an offering that it might not be good enough. And I just think that wasn't the point of that story, but I think that might be how it's kind of functioning in our deep spiritual unconsciousness. Well, and we assume that if a gift is rejected, that the means giver. we are rejected. Right. I, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. While you, while you move on, I'm going to look it up right now because I'm, I'm interested. Well, here's what I'm thinking about this week. Um, several weeks ago, the beginning of this month, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States made a decision uh, concerning uh, Wait, prayer. Wait, can I pause you? Yeah, sure. Um, it doesn't, the translation is, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So I just think it would be interesting to think about, like, what does that mean? Does was, That, to me, is not the same as rejecting. I mean. It sounds to me like rejecting. Looked with favor says, I receive, I accept. Well, if again, you don't I don't have favor. It is. Um, well, favored isn't like I can have favor for one type of food and not favor for the other type of food, but I can still consume both types. I don't know. I, anyway, sorry. I, it's a it's a segue. It's coming to a sermon near all of you soon. <laughs> sorry. Anyway, the Supreme Court. Let's talk about the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. Supreme How could we talk about Jesus without talking about the Supreme Court? Well, they, they made a decision earlier this month. And I, I don't think we've talked about this, but... Um, uh, there was a case uh, concerning a high school coach in Washington State, uh, Coach Joe Kennedy, who had a practice of going to the center of the field after a football game and praying with his players. And the school, uh, the high school barred him from doing that. And so that case reached the Supreme Court and the Sup Supreme Court decided in a decision six to three, I believe, that um, the school was wrong. And so Christians across the country have been celebrating um, a victory, and I am struggling. Um, let me say before I go on that um, I support prayer. <laughs> I love prayer. I think we should all pray. I support public prayer. I support coaches praying. I support athletes praying. I do not have any problem with praying in public or praying um, in a school. It's not my issue. It's that it seems to me we Christians are celebrating a culture war victory and forgetting 
a central teaching of Jesus. Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, I believe, when you pray. I was going to say, you do, don't have a problem with public prayer, but it sure seems like Jesus did. He said, don't make a public spectacle of it, right? Go into your closet, pray in secret, and your father who sees in secret will will reward you. And we are And what did Jesus say about the people who prayed in public? Well, he said, they have their reward. They have their reward. That, like that's everybody what, saw you. That's you, what the Pharisees do. And we are celebrating the ability to have this public display. And I'm thinking, number one, no one can stop you from praying. I mean, you Correct. can pray at any time. I mean, I can, I can be in any school, public or private, and pray whenever I want, whether I'm a teacher or a student. There is this, I think, false narrative that Christians are somehow being um, barred from uh, the exercise of faith. And, and I, especially as a black Christian in this country, I, I don't see it. Um, I think it is... Um, it's 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 a straw man that's being fought. Um, yeah, I just think I mean, a the Christian practices that I can see that are being outlawed is you've got a lot of municipalities passing laws and saying like, oh, you're not allowed to feed people in public, or you're not allowed to go into the desert and leave um, packages of water and food um, so that people who are wandering through the desert lost can find this and and not die. So I think, you know, there are some Christian practices that are being curtailed, but it's but it's not prayer. And I think you're right just to say like this is a this is a um a secular <laughs> culture war battle that is is being fought and it's got nothing to do with the kingdom of God. But the reality but, is you can't compel someone to pray. And I think the church would have a different position if the coach were Muslim or Hindu and was going out onto the field praying. And let's just say the best players on the team were Muslim or Hindu. The argument would be, well, the Christian players feel compelled because mm -hmm. they want they want playing time, mm -hmm. right? They feel compelled, they feel pressured to go out onto the field. It's not fair. Well, I mean, I just think the reality is it could be even different than that. It could be a football coach who is a Satanist mm. or, a, you know, a Wiccan or someone who comes out and has a has a real um, hierarchical, patriarchal understanding of um, masculinity and gender identity who's going. I mean, I just the reality is um, prayer the bottom line is for people for people who are following Jesus to understand that if Jesus wanted to compel allegiance, he would have done it, and he didn't. Um, and the reality, and Jesus said, obviously, there's a place for communal prayer. That is there. There is worship, um, and that was um, that was legislated throughout the covenant at particular times and places, so that people would gather and go in those times and places. But you know, a public gathering for sport or commerce what that wasn't that wasn't the space that wasn't the set aside time and i just think the main point is your initial point which is mine which is we can all pray all the time any way we want to there's no force on 
in all of creation that can stop a person from praying if they want to pray. Now, what can what can be limited is whether or not you pray so that others can hear you, right? Like your your ability to pray in front of others or to pray visibly or audibly, that can be limited. And then I would just think in other faith traditions, I can't speak to that. But as a follower of Jesus, it seems to me very clearly that Jesus has said, I, I don't want you to pray so that other people can see you. That's in fact, specifically what I do not want you to do. Because when you pray so that other people can see you, you're praying to them, not to God. And it, and we see that all, all the time. So I remember the last time um, my wife and I were in San Francisco, not exactly a conservative city. And we were getting on the trolley and the trolley line was long and, you know, they had... Um, uh, these rope barriers that you had to um, get behind and on the other side of the barrier and everyone had to pass this way to get on the trolley on the other side of the barrier there was a guy literally standing on a box preaching he's reading his bible and preaching I'm like well you get to do that right, right. it's it's public sp- public space and i i just don't see how christians are being limited Right. In terms of the practice of faith. But I just think what what Christians, what the uh, some of our public institutions are trying to do, and I think Christians should agree with, you know, a lot of people would say, well, it's good that that coach can compel students to pray to Jesus if they want playing time, because that might just be the edge that gets a student to be interested in Jesus who wouldn't be otherwise. Well, and I would just say what we've been saying about there is a way Jesus is right. the way and has a way that compelling people is not his way. Well, and also if you, if I'm a coach and I'm on some level saying like, well, the young men who are Christians, I'm going to give them more playing time. And the young men who don't play with me, I'm going to give them less playing time. That is counter to the ethos of the kingdom of God, as I understand it. I just, you know, that is not, we need to be inviting. We need to be welcoming. We need to be including. And one of the ways that we magnify the Lord is to show that we are a people who look out for the good of folks who are not part of our community. That is, in fact, what defines our community is that we are not, we are not inwardly centered. We are not us centered. We are not you know, tribe centered, but that we are a community who looks out for the needs of those who are not part of our community, um, even even our own enemies. Right? We don't have to um, we don't have to support an agenda that is evil, but we would look out for the well being even of people who seek to do us harm, and that is how we. Um, bear witness to the kingdom of God, not by compelling and forcing and using power over and against people to force them yes. to come in and, and at least perform allegiance to Jesus. And when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the great criticisms that the Pharisees levied against Jesus was that he spent a whole lot of time with hanging sinners, out with sinners. Sinners and tax collectors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I also think about that time when was it James and John came out came back from going out on a preaching tour and they had been rejected in a community and they were like let's rain Jesus down let's fire. rain down fire on them and Jesus is like what is the matter with you <laughs> like that is not what we do we don't say get on board our train or else we're going to destroy you we don't try to bring people 
to worship God because they have an awe of the destructive power and suffering that God can cause. But no, we are trying to magnify the tender hearted goodness and mercy, the power of mercy in the world. So last night in our elders meeting, we were praying about an event that we're hosting tonight at Dorita Church. It's a community event. It is not a Christian event. It's uh, a group of people who care about recycling. Mm -hmm. And there's this project to um, get people in our neighborhood to recycle plastic for six months And out of that, there's an engineer in the neighborhood who is going to create a bus bench that's going to be located right across the street from our church. Oh, cool. And so we're hosting this event, and we know that there are going to be people from all kinds of traditions and uh, no faith tradition at all. And so we were praying about last night, and one of the things we prayed was that they would experience the aroma of Christ. Mm-hmm. being on our campus and being among us, right? And that's a that's a different work than compelling people, forcing them, threatening them to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. So what are you thinking about? Um, I am thinking about court support. Um, and I just felt... Oh, something light. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just feel like for a while I've just wanted to sort of share my thinking about why I feel very called to um, donate to bail campaigns and also to do court support um, because I think that um, oftentimes there aren't very many voices from within the Christian community who are articulating those values and often um, when I'm when I'm doing this work or partnering with folks in this work they are not um, leading from a Christian perspective because um, Christians don't do this work. And I think, you know, if there's a work of justice that the church is indifferent to, um, that the church has closed its ears to, I think the Holy Spirit will find other people um, to do the work of the Lord. And often in Scripture, it's not the people of faith who are acting um, with um, the most um, passion for justice. Um, often it, it is... Um, others, you know, others. And, you know, and Jesus says a lot, like, would would that I've never seen faith like this among the people of Israel, right? So there's this expectation, I think, if we identify ourselves as followers of God or followers of Jesus, and we come, we we identify heavily with an institution that exists um, to do the work of God, we expect that we have the, um, the cornerstone on what it means to live faithfully in the world. But I think our own scripture tells us oftentimes that um, God says that, you know, God's people are put to shame by those that they consider, um, you know, heathens or um, sinners are more righteous than they. So, um, so I feel really compelled um, to, to participate in bail campaigns and to do court support. And I just wanted to share why from a Christian perspective. Um, so two things, I think, um, there are a lot of people broadly who have done the work of looking at some of the systems and institutions in our country and acknowledge that both historically and currently these powerful systems and by that, I mean the justice system or the penal system or the educational system, um, were, were founded by people who held some pretty um, destructive um, white supremacist ideals. Um, And so, you know, the thing about understanding um, 
systemic racism as opposed to individual people who are racist. So an individual person who is racist would have prejudiced thoughts in their hearts that I'm better than this other group of people because of whatever, whatever um, physical characteristic or trait. Um, but when we talk about systemic racism, what I think people don't understand is what we're, we're not saying that everyone who participates in that system is individually a racist. We're not saying that. Correct. What we're saying is the system itself is um, embodies and perpetuates white supremacist ideals just by its rules and procedures and structures in such a way that even if no one in the system is racist, it's still going to pre going to create outcomes that are in line with white supremacist ideals, right? Like that's the whole point so that you can be a person who compassionately and, and intellectually um, is wise enough to know that there's no difference between these different people groups ontologically, but the system itself will produce these outcomes and it absolves anyone within the system of any personal responsibility for that because it's just the rules. I'm just following the rules. It's not, I'm not making exceptions. It's just, it's fair. Um, so I think there are a lot of, uh, Christians who can read something like Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy or watch the 13th Amendment, um, uh, uh, the 13th by, what's her name? Um, I can't think of her name. Um, it's, it's escaping me right now. And also um, like look at the 1619 Project and sort of intellectually, particularly in the PCUSA, intellectually grasp, oh, okay, I get um, historically what was happening when these institutions were being formed. I also can follow the work of the sociologists and academic and political leaders who, who share these different data points and outcomes so I can see, you know, oh gosh, um, say people deemed white and people of color use drugs at the same, um, at the same rate, and yet people deemed white are not incarcerated and people who of color are incarcerated at five or six times the rate. Or, or you can look at these facts in a newspaper article and read about, so um, people who are white commit crimes at the same um, level that people who are black or of other ethnicities commit crimes. And yet we can see that while the African-American population is what, I think 30% of the national population, it's like 70% of the um, prison population. And again, if, but the, but the sociologists and the historians and the statisticians will say white people and black people are, cre are committing crimes at the same rate, at the same rate. So then you, what that means then is that the system itself is set up to when a white person commits a crime, that person is treated by the system in a different way than when a black person commits the same crime. If you don't, if you aren't willing to think about that, then the only explanation that you can offer for the fact that black people are 30% of the com of the population and 70% of the prison population, if you don't believe that the systems, if you reject this understanding that the systems are inherently racist structurally, if you reject that and say it's not true, then the only explanation you're left with is that somehow black people are more criminal than white people, right? So the reality is to say there's no such thing as systemic racism really then betrays that you hold some individual racist thinking in your heart because you're willing to believe like, well, 
now you can quibble with the findings, right? Like if you if you want to go deep into the research and say who who are these people who say that black people and white people commit crimes at the same rate? I don't believe that. I mean, that's fine. You you can look in that work. But if you do believe that and then you accept these disparate outcomes, then what you're saying is I'm okay with it. Basically, you're saying I believe that white people who commit crimes shouldn't be punished to the same extent that black people do. Or I believe that black people who commit crimes are more dangerous intrinsically than white people who commit crimes. So it's okay to let white people go, but black people still need to be imprisoned, right? If you if you understand that these systems and institutions are producing these disparate outcomes and you don't care, then you do have a problem with how you, in your heart of hearts, see different people groups, because you are accepting that it's okay with you if people get these different outcomes. And if you are not sure how you think about it, think just do a little thought experiment. And if white people and black people created crimes, at, committed crimes at the same levels, but the prison, um, but white people were four times more likely to be imprisoned than black people, how would you feel about that? Um, so I think. Um, but one of the reasons I do court support is it's fine to read the 1619 Project of the New York Times and agree. It's fine to go to a conference and to learn. It's fine to march in a protest. It's good to vote. It's um, good to read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. It's good to learn intellectually about them. But at some point, if you accept that this is true... Um, then you need to interrogate yourself about how are you responding. And so for me, folks who are trying to advocate to make sure that people of color are treated fairly within the criminal justice system, what they tell me, and they do this work all the time, I do church work all the time, they, they tell me that the number of white people who are sitting in a gallery when a person of color is before a judge. Literally, the number of white people sitting there changes the outcome for a person who is accused of a crime. Now, I think as white people who believe in justice, we are responsible for what we do when someone who is in this work tells us that. Um, it You might not believe that that's true. So then I think if you don't believe it's true, you need to go and see, right? I just think when someone says that, I'm not saying you have to believe them, but if it's possible that that's true, then I think that you, if you can, I think you need to go and see. Because if it's true, then by going and sitting down and watching, not talking, not disrupting, not doing anything that is not perfectly legal. I mean, we have open court procedures in this country for a reason. It's a key part of our understanding that transparency, that justice flourishes in transparent situations, right? So there's nothing manipulative or wrong or illegal or deceitful or underhanded about observing a court procedure. Any person in the public can go to any court procedure at any time. So if it is true that people who are advocating for justice for people of color say that the number of white people sitting in a gallery makes a difference in how a defendant is treated, then I think that for me, I need to go and sit down and find out if that's true. If it's if I perceive it to be not true, then okay, now I know. But if I think it might be true, or if I think it is true, and I'm unwilling to even go and sit down to offer support, then for me, that's... Um, 
that's a problem because I'm, I'm saying that I believe in this. I'm saying that these are my values. I'm saying that God is a God of justice, but I'm not willing to be a good steward of the resources that I have, including the resource in this broken world that I have that's called white privilege. I'm not willing to leverage that on behalf of the people who are most vulnerable in the system. So that's why I do court support. Um, I will say that a lot of these systems really, we just take for granted, even though there's so much information and even though we agree in the abstract with the idea that these systems are problematic and they're broken and they need reforming and they're producing outcomes that we don't believe in, but we still think like, well, that's not my job. Like that's somebody else's job. The reality is as American citizens and particularly as white citizens, these systems were all created to benefit us. And so I do feel responsible for, if nothing else, my awareness, right? So I hear really troubling things and I want to go and find out if they're true. And I just have to say in my own experience, in my own very limited experience of doing court support, um, I know they're true. I know they're true firsthand. One of my young people that I served in Boston who who um, died recently from um, his addiction to disease, but when he was younger, um, he just had a really hard, really, really hard life. And um, at one point, after the death of both his parents and the rejection of his um, extended family, um, went back to the only community other than the church that really accepted him, and that was a gang. And he was involved in um, in a robbery attempt, which I, I mean, he did. No one was hurt, but he was involved in it. And um, so I was, he, I was his youth leader, and so I was, um, you know, going to court because when somebody you love is involved with the criminal justice system, whether they're guilty or innocent, you you support them. And as Christians, we don't only support innocent people. As Christians, we support guilty people, right? Not that we say that what you did is okay or you should escape from consequences, but you're still worthy of spiritual support and love even when you do great harm, right? And I don't have to, That that's not harming the victim to support a person who, um, caused harm, right? It's not saying that the harm that was caused was okay. It's just saying that both of these people caught in the system are made in the image of God and and, and these lives have value. And so my young person um, committed a crime and no one was harmed. And I was um, trying to show up for him really honestly, just so that he knew that the church wasn't rejecting him um, and that people loved him and that he was more than people's expectations of him and more than the worst thing he'd ever done. And I, um, he had a public defender. I've never heard his name was Mark Cohen. And I was just sort of, you know, asking what I could do. And he told me to come. And so I came and I sat down and this, um, was in Boston and the particular court, I guess the place when you're arraigned, I don't really understand how the legal system works, but you're arraigned to different courthouses depending on where the crime took place. And so he was arraigned to this court, um, and the way that it worked, this was not a trial. This was an early procedure. And so the judge was just kind of seeing people and confirming when they would go to trial or when they would get out on bail or whatever. And so I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. There's a lot of sitting there and waiting. And and the first cases are being called. And these are all people who are not being held in jail. And so I just watched like one young white man after another young white man after another young white man, they would come up from the gallery in a suit and tie. They would walk to the front. They would be 
the charges would be read against him. And the charges were all drug possession, um, often p- um, possession with intent to distribute. So these young white men were, co- were drug dealers. Um, and they would come up from the gallery, the charges would be read against them, and then they would go back to the gallery and walk home. They stayed in school, they did all that work. And and I believe that selling drugs does a lot of harm. Um, and then after all of those young white men went through, then they started hearing, move on to the next place, which are the prisoners, the people who are being held in jail. Jail is where you go before you have been convicted of any crime. So you've been accused um, but everyone in jail is presumed innocent. And so then the people who are held in jail are, are coming up second. And these are all people of color. <laughs> they are all led into the courtroom in orange prison jumpsuits and shackles. Um, and and I remember this one man, I just, because I remember looking at Mark Cohen and just being like, I don't understand what I just saw. This one man, they read the charges against him. He had stolen diapers from a CVS. Diapers from a CVS, came in in shackles, wearing orange. Charges were read against him, sent back to jail. I'm like, so I see young white men who are selling drugs, who are free to go about their life while they await trial. And a black man who stole diapers from a CVS, who is now sitting in jail. I don't know how to understand that, except an extreme bias based on maybe it's wealth and not race, but we know that wealth outcomes are completely aligned with racial outcomes in this country for all of the reasons that that you can learn when you look at redlining and when you look at access to education and access to jobs. So I'm just saying we have a prison system that regularly incarcerates some people for stealing diapers and lets people out for selling drugs. And the factor that differentiates is race. And I mean, and you know, my young friend, Tim, well, my young friend who I was supporting, like he, he did try to rob people and steal their money, but he did not harm anyone. Um, but he went to jail for, and he was in jail for the rest of the time that he was a minor. And it definitely, it changed the outcome of his life because then when he got out of prison, he no longer had any social supports. Um, and he did like white knuckle it and really turn his life around in really amazing ways. But it was just so much harder than it needed to be because he had no support and he was caught in systems that saw him as a threat and a danger instead of the way those systems saw those young white men, which were people with promise and something to offer the world, then they didn't want to derail their futures. And so that's that's what I'm saying is like, I think a lot of times white people, we don't want to get involved directly in seeing how our own court systems work because we're afraid that it's every bit as bad as people are telling us. And we feel like, well, if I don't know directly, then I'm not culpable and I'm not responsible. And the truth is, I mean, good, go, go and sit there. And maybe you will sit there and see like, no, this all seems very fair to me. Great. (laughs) But when people who do this work all day, every day are telling us this is the kind of difference that that contributes to outcomes and it is clearly aligned with um, race and ethnicity, I think as a follower of Jesus Christ, I I need to sit down 
and see if that is true. And then I'm responsible for seeking of the Lord what I'm going to do about it. So that's why, you know, I give to bail fund because I just think that, you know, bail is created in our system to guarantee that people will come back and stand trial. That's why it exists, because everyone in our system is innocent until proven guilty. And so I just don't think that some people should be imprisoned from the day they're accused of something and other people should be able to go out and await trial and like care for their children and work their jobs and keep their life going based on access to money. The reality is, I, I just don't think cash bail should be a thing. If someone doesn't show up for trial, sure, then they need to wait um, in incarceration until so that they we can guarantee that they will um, appear. But if someone is just poor, too poor to raise that capital, that shouldn't determine whether or not they they get to be innocent until proven guilty. And cash bail works if someone is considered a threat to the public, they don't get bail. So anybody who gets bail is someone that the court systems itself, the justice systems themselves say, this person is not a threat to the general public. But the way it actually works is when a judge feels that the charge is more serious, they up the bail money. And if you can't pay. You can't pay. So I just think that's not how bail, that, that is how bail works, but it is not how bail is supposed to work. And I just think, again, like, you could say, well, I, and some people do, like, well, I just trust that that the system is doing what it's supposed to do and that some people need to sit in jail. And so we need to set those higher bail prices to keep them in jail. And I'm like, okay, if that's what you think, then you need to be honest with yourself and say, I understand that this system gives different outcomes to white people and black people. And I think that's good because I do think that black people are more dangerous than white people. So I'm okay if the system gives white people the benefit of the doubt and black people the benefit of uh, guilt. Right? If I, I'm okay if the system presumes white people are guilt, innocent and black people are guilty, I think that's actually what the system should do because I think generally those things are true. If that's what you think, that is how the system works. And I think there are a lot of white people who, who don't want to be honest with themselves that that kind of is what they think. Yeah, in, in addition to innocence and guilt, it's harmless and dangerous correct and i mean that's i mean that's the bottom line we think that even white people who commit violent crimes are not dangerous and we think that even black people who do not commit violent crimes are dangerous and what we don't understand but which is so true is the the incarceration system that we have is so expensive and the reason that the majority of people who commit crimes commit crimes is because they are desperate because they're poor they're, they're desperate because they're poor. And we feel like we don't want to help poor people because they shouldn't get what they don't deserve. But we are okay if people commit crimes. And then we invest a lot of money in incarcerating them because that's what they deserve. So we want to spend money on, on ways that we think people deserve to get it spent on them. Like I was reading an article just yesterday about there's a... Um, there's a drug treatment program, and I don't remember what it's the the designation is CM, and I can't remember what the CM stands for. But basically, they incentivize people to stay clean by just giving them money. So, like if you come in and you get a clean drug test, you just get a certain amount of money, um, and and it's highly highly effective. Like people stay clean, and also it's way cheaper than any other kind of drug treatment that's out there, and. The um, no one will do it in the United States. Why? Because we don't want to pay people for doing what they 
what we think they should do on their own and what we don't, you don't deserve money for getting clean. So we don't want to give you money, even though if we gave you that money, it would make, it would be way cheaper than incarcerating you. It would be way cheaper than putting your kids in um, the uh, foster care system. And like, it'd be way cheaper than having to treat you in an emergency room when you're having some sort of like cognitive psychosis that's inspired like any giving you money and incentivizing you to stay clean would not only be better for you but would be better for every taxpayer and public safety but we refuse to do it because we don't want to give people what they don't deserve and so like we have the system we believe in and that's what I think like for me as a white person we really I need to wrestle with that if I say I understand that the systems are the way they are but I'm but I just don't want to be directly involved and I'm fine if they work that way, as long as it's not my fault and I'm not responsible, like that's not okay. And so I just think that's why I do court support. That's why I give, I mean, not a lot, I don't have a lot to give, but why I give money um, to bail campaigns, because I just know that these systems produce unjust outcomes for people of color and I can't always change them, but I don't want to lie to myself about that. And I also want people of color to know that there are people in their community who are trying to support them. I want to know that everyone isn't just okay with the system being the way it is and the certain number of people just being mangled by it and that's all right. So everything that you've said made me think about um my upbringing, uh, growing up in uh suburbia and my parents telling me again and again and again and again you can't do everything your white friends do yeah. because if they get in trouble, it's one thing. If you get in trouble, it's a whole different world of trouble, and you don't want that. And um, years pass, years pass, years pass. Um, sometime during the month of my 25th birthday, I'm a seminary student. I'm in my apartment. And I'm reading the Louisville paper, and there's an article, uh, I think written by someone in um, Los Angeles, if I remember correctly. But I will never forget the title, um, Still Alive at 25. Yeah. And I read this article, and uh, basically this uh, black man, another part of the country, was celebrating the fact that he made it to his 25th birthday when I was making it to my 25th birthday and he hadn't been caught up in the system. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in my apartment alone and just crying because the weight of all that I've been navigating, right, the, the reality of it. Um, because most days you... Um, just for your soul's sanity. You put so much of that in a box. Right. It's like it's there in your emotional, spiritual periphery. Uh, and so you don't look at it squarely because it, it's, it's just, it's too much. But then there are those moments like reading that article and you, you pause and you, you see the system, you see what you've been navigating. And I think it was both a rush of um, relief 
a rush of frustration and anger and some guilt um, because this article just cited the, uh, uh, the, the percentage of African-American men who get caught up in the system by the time they're 25 and it just changes the total trajectory of their lives. And um, I knew that there was really nothing um, particularly special about me and how I lived that um, helped me to avoid getting caught up in the system. I, 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 I could have been one of those. And so, um, yeah, that's all very weighty. And um, those are issues that are, are just very challenging for me to look at because they are so close to home. Yeah, I think that, you know, we really want to believe that. And I know there are people who are listening to this podcast who are listening to you and thinking like, well, Yolando, you, you would never have gotten caught up in the system because you're, quote, one of the good ones, right? Like Wrong. you, well, I mean, I'm just saying though, I'm saying I know that there are a lot that's of people who are listening to you that that's what they're thinking. And they're thinking like the system would have never destroyed someone like you, someone whose parents, you know, were, and like, that's, that's what people don't understand that there are plenty of people, like some people, look, I mean, let's just be honest for some people going well in their own story, they will trace jail and prison as a life-saving event for them. And I don't, I, I'm not going to lie and say that that's not true. Um, that is true for some people. And but there are a lot of people who that um, process of being in the criminal justice system completely altered who they were, um, the their future, their opportunities, and what was available to them. And we think like, okay, well, all those people whose lives were altered, they would have never grown up to be nice Presbyterian pastors doing podcasts about theology. And that is the assumption that's killing us, that we're thinking, well, anybody whose life was destroyed by the system, their life never really had any value anyway. And that is the lie. And honestly, that lie, if that's what you want to tell yourself, like, I know these systems are unfair, I know they're unjust, but they're not really hurting anyone who matters, then you need to dig a level deeper under your comfort with that and say, like, so why do I think the fact that so many of these lives are destroyed don't matter? It means I really do way down deep have a sense that black people are ontologically different and that there's a percentage that need to go to jail. Mm -hmm. Or or that, you know, only some only some black people have lives that have the potential to come up and add to the community, but a lot of people who are born black are intrinsically a threat that has to be managed and controlled. And that is definitely the ethos that the, the systems that we currently are and under it's, it's were founded used. by. I mean, right. listen, if you go back and watch commercials from I mean, even the late 90s, early 2000s, when um, home security systems were all the rage, right, when they were first becoming a thing, mm -hmm. in those commercials, it's usually a black intruder that your home security system is protecting you from. Now, that that has changed, and I'm, I'm glad to see in the commercials they're using different people. But, um, yeah, it, it's not an accident 
that um, black people are viewed as a threat. Yeah, no, and I think um, we just we just need to really figure out uh, because scripture all the time when you look at the prophets and when the prophets were speaking God's judgment against the people it was not that the people weren't worshiping it wasn't that they weren't following ritual cultic practices it wasn't that they didn't claim allegiance to Yahweh or that Yahweh was the only God or that they were the chosen people it wasn't that they had a, a problem that we would label theological like again and again what the prophets were saying is you're specifically the prophets call out the courts. The prophets specifically say your courts are selling justice and like the rich are um, trampling on the necks of the poor. Your judges are unjust. Like specifically what happened in the courtroom mattered in God's eyes. You could not worship God in spirit and truth and be indifferent to injustice in the courtrooms. And I just, I take that really seriously um, as a biblical scholar, I look at that and go, I can't ignore that. It's there. It's in the text. And I feel like as a person who is entrusted with forming a community based on biblical values, I just feel like I need to pass on to people of faith. If you think that it's what matters to God is only how you think about God and how and where you pray to God and and also, you know, sort of how you navigate your personal relationships, but the how the courts and your community work has nothing to do with you and God's not God doesn't care about that and God doesn't hold you responsible for that. I mean, that is not true um, according to the biblical record. And so, you know, whatever, there there are ways that you could theologically get around that. You could say, well, that's all Old Testament, Pastor Kate, and I'm under grace now. I mean, that's fine. But I'm just saying for me, I take the heart of God that is revealed to me in the words of the prophets seriously. And I think that the heart of that God had for justice and for vulnerable people in the Hebrew Bible, God still has today. And I don't think that Jesus coming and saying, I have come to be good news to the oppressed and release to the captives. I don't think that that makes God less concerned about how people are treated in courtrooms, particularly in courtrooms of nations that claim to be Christian nations, to claim to be nations followed, founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so I'm thinking about. So what are you preaching? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's only Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. I don't know. I'm really behind, actually. I know that coming up next, I'm going to do a really brief series on Hosea. Um, but I don't know what I'm preaching about this Sunday. I need, um, it's going to be our last Sunday on the our spirit school, one on the Holy Spirit. And I really want to talk about spiritual gifts. Um, and I'm not quite sure where um, to go about that, but that's what I need to do. What about you? What are you preaching about? Well, we both preached um, Colossians 1, uh, 1 through 14 last mm -hmm. Sunday. Mm -hmm. and We um, tried. We tried, <laughs> yes. We both tried. <laughs> I spent 80% of the time explaining the historical background of the text and then got to verse 2. And so this week I'll be preaching um, verses three through fourteen of Colossians one, but it was it was so helpful, at least to me. I, I was really, um, I, I just felt led to spend a lot of time uh, in the in the background of the text because it just matches where we are as a church and as a society. And um, yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about the heresy in um, the the church in Colossae and how there's a similar heresy creeping up among us uh, in 
um, this idea that the church has to choose sides in the culture war. Uh, um, matter of fact, the Holy Spirit gave me the line, um, uh, seek first, the, the, the heresy says, seek first to win the culture war. Mm-hmm. Then I was gonna the say, kingdom. Can you tell, for people who are know the word but are not, like how would you define the word heresy? Heresy, um, it is teaching in the church that has a bit of truth, has a bit of orthodoxy, but it is um, ultimately infused with teaching, with ideas, philosophies, ideologies that are not true. So, for example, um, I don't know, give me an example. Um, God, well, the God prosperity gave, gospel well, is a heresy. Oh, yes. Um, so it, it is partially that the true nugget that it grows out of is this idea that it is, it blesses us when we follow God's God blesses ways. blesses and gives abundance. Right. Yes. And that, and also the idea that God um, punishes um, um, or, you know, there are, there are negative consequences for people who defy God and break God's ways. And that, that following God's ways is inherently fruitful and blessing, not just to God, but to God's people, that we were created to flourish and, when and we are the, righteous. The false teaching is that the sign that you are right with God, you're living right, you're doing what God, what pleases God, is that you have material financial abundance. And if you are faithful in giving, then you will receive the blessing of more money or more material goods or power. So, um, so that's a heresy. That um, yeah. So, well, I just realized we've been talking for a long time. And so we need to abruptly and inelegantly uh, stop. We need to stop talking. (laughs) Um, So thank y'all for listening to us. And um, if you want to find out more about what is going on in God's church at Derrida, you can go to Derrida Church. It's D-E-R-I-T-A. Prez, P-R-E-S dot org, right? That's right. I say it so many times that now I forget it. Um, and you can check out Yolando's sermons on the Podbeam website. Uh, their podcast is hosted there. It's the Dorada Church podcast. And you can um, worship with them at 11 o'clock on Sundays. Correct. And you can also check out their YouTube channel, which has yes. lots, uh, which has all their worship services, so, uh, which is the Derida Church channel on YouTube. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, um, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. You can go to the Podbean website and then just get ours, right? You could do that. Um, or our YouTube channel, all of those. There's a lot of groves in the world, so you got to look for the one with the green tree. And uh, you can worship with us in person or online at 10 o'clock on Sundays. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>